Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Good to have you at Pack City Church. My name is Patrick Vukovic. Uh, I am one of our community group leaders. And if you'd like to check out the community group I co-lead with Kate, we meet on Thursdays at 7.30 in West L.A. Get in touch with us. Meet us at the community table afterward. Um, I would like to thank Wilson, who didn't even know it, but gave me a perfect little introduction to my talk today, which is no shame. There is no shame in Jesus. I hadn't really thought of an introduction, so I'm just going to take that and run with it. Um, Yeah, so we are continuing a series called Experiencing God. And so this is what we're doing through the whole month of June. Every Sunday here, we're exploring ways that people interact with God, how God enters and changes our lives. And today, we're specifically looking at Jesus and what interacting with him is like. And I think we could all admit maybe talking about Jesus, for some of us, is super comfortable. But for others, even if we've known him for a long time, can feel strange. It can be weird. His name carries so much weight and a lot of cultural expectation. Like it's really easy to talk about God generically or spirituality or religion, but when you get really specific and put the name of Jesus into the conversation, it becomes a very different thing. It's a very specific person, a very specific God, a very specific faith. And there are tons of assumptions that go along with that, whether they're extremely positive or extremely negative. And whenever Jesus enters the conversation, things get unpredictable. Uh, So that's what it's like talking about Jesus. Now imagine talking to Jesus and how strange and maybe uncomfortable that would be. And we're going to look at a story from the Bible today about a woman who talked to Jesus and how so much in her life was upended all in the matter of minutes. Um, it's a moment that similar to maybe our conversations with Jesus is fraught with cultural assumptions and religious assumptions. And we're going to see how Jesus just kind of just turns the tables, flips things around and really changes one woman's whole life, but a whole town's life and teaches us a lot of new things in the story from the gospel of John. So today I'm calling this talk encountering Jesus And we're looking at a story from the Gospel of John, which is in the New Testament, so that's the latter half of the Bible. It's one of the Gospels, which are stories of the ministry and life of Jesus. And it's the last one, and it was written by a very close disciple of his, one of his closest friends during the whole time that he lived and ministered on the earth. His name is John, and this is in chapter 4 of his Gospel. And before we dive into that scripture, I'm going to pray. Would you join me? Lord Jesus, help us to get to know you better today and to experience you as we look at your word and invite you into our presence. Be with us and have your way. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So this is John chapter 4, and it begins with just a little intro where Jesus, who's going about his ministry throughout Israel, is leaving Jerusalem to go to the north half of Israel. So Jerusalem is in the south in Judea. The north half is Galilee. And you might know this if you've read any of the Gospels. Jesus was so different about the way he did everything that he pissed off a lot of the Jewish leaders all the time. And so things were getting a little hairy in Jerusalem. So he thought, I'll leave and go to the northern half of Israel. So he's on the way. And it says, starting in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
Picking up in verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So is this just a conversation about getting water from a well? No. Good answer. Great. Yeah. Uh, So what's happening here? Well, on the first read, it can be a little hard to understand without a bit of historical and cultural context. So let's look at that. And first I'm going to ask, what or who are the Samaritans? It's kind of a complicated history, and so I'm going to give you the nutshell version. But the more important thing is to understand how did the Jews see the Samaritans? The Jews saw them as kind of this half-breed, mixed-raced people. Mixed-race people. Uh, They did not look on them kindly. So they were people who had been Jews back in the days of ancient Israel. But as the kingdom of Israel fell apart and was taken over by other powers, they were basically refugees in their own land and just were forced to intermingle with the Gentiles and Assyrians who lived among them. And they just kind of... They became a different group of people who kept some of the traditions of Judaism, but the Jews would have seen their faith as bastardized. Um, Again, there was really just not a lot of love between these two people. In fact, there was a lot of open hostility. A couple hundred years before this time, the Samaritans had built a temple on this mountain, which we'll talk about in a little bit, a little bit more, and the Jews totally ruined it. They destroyed it. Um, So... To help us understand a little bit more, it's also important to ask where the Samaritans lived. And this is fun. There's a little map on your screen. They lived right in the middle of Israel. So there's these two groups of people that hate each other, basically one surrounding the other. And if you look at the map of first century Israel, the kind of border on the side is the River Jordan. Oftentimes, when Jews had to go from the south to the north or vice versa, they would cross over the river and go up that side just to avoid Samaria and the Samaritans. There's an interesting story in another one of the Gospels, Luke, about Jesus traveling the other way. He was headed toward Jerusalem, and he wanted a place to stay because it was a long journey. He was going to rest somewhere in a village in Samaria, and his disciples went to try to find a room for them, a place to stay, and the Samaritans said, no, no, you're not welcome here. We're not going to put you up. Which is understandable if you're a Samaritan and you knew the Jews hated you, and here's a prominent Jewish leader, a teacher who is going to the seat of power of the Jews. Like, yeah, maybe let's just keep our distance. You're not welcome here. It's also important to remember, though, that Jesus was kind of this guy. You may not know a ton about him, but he was very much about, like, loving your neighbor and praying for your enemy. But two of his closest followers, in response to the Samaritans turning him away, in Luke 9, 54 and 55, and this isn't on your screens, but all you need to do is hear this. James and John saw what happened, and they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Wait, were these guys following the love your neighbor guy and the pray for your enemy guy? 
That's how deeply the prejudice ran among the Jews against the Samaritans. Prejudice dies very slowly. And here in our story about Jesus sitting by a well asking a Samaritan woman for a water, we have a Jewish teacher who in the culture of the day would have been expected to most closely adhere to ritual purity laws. Jews and their leaders were all about purity and maintaining their pure race. And this Samaritan woman would have been about as far from purity as could be. Yet Jesus interacted with her. He asked her for water. He didn't even have a vessel of his own, which means he would have been touching the thing that she touched to get her water. And what about this woman herself? We don't know tons just yet, and we'll get to more. But what we do know is that she was alone getting water in the middle of the day. The hottest part of the day, the hardest time of the day to go and do this physical labor of carrying water. Most people would get water at dusk or at dawn when it was cooler and easier. And they'd go in groups. But she was likely an outcast, even among her own people. Let alone the perspective of Samaritans from Jews. She was just avoiding interaction with others from her own village. She was not well liked and probably was very aware of that. But here Jesus interacts with her. And as he does so, he counters every expectation. He communicated respectfully. He broke through cultural barriers. And he broke through barriers of shame just to interact with her, just to have a chat. And in doing so, he conveys her worth and her goodness just for simply being another human on this planet. And so I think the first thing to take away when we encounter Jesus, as this woman did, is that he dignifies us. He always communicates our value when we interact with him. He bestows dignity on us, whether or not we think about it, we feel that we deserve it, or we believe we have any. There's kind of a popular Christianese phrase about how Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus meets me where I am. And I think this is a picture of that. He was not afraid. He was not disgusted. He was not put off by interacting with this woman who clearly was in a tough place in life. Now, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, and we get to cheat and look at the whole story all at once, we know that John said, Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He was God in the flesh, and it was through him that all of creation was spoken into being, including this woman. And including each of us. We are his creation. Now, if any of you are creators, like artists or craftsmen or whatever, how much more do you value something that you made versus something that maybe you just bought or found? This woman was something that he made, that his father God, through him, spoke into being. And he valued her. He bestowed that value on her simply by interacting, where so much of the world around her would not do that. And then he tells her that he has this gift of eternal life. Through living water. So let's continue the story in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this living water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now buckle up because the conversation takes a few strange turns. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
our ancient, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, sh- we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Okay, so how do we go from talking about water to Jesus revealing to this woman that he's the Messiah? It's a little bit of a rush, but let's slowly rewind. And first, let me point out that this woman is just as confused as you may be. Remember, she said, oh, yeah, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. Because what Jesus just said to her did not sink in, not at first anyway. But of course, if you know the Gospels, his ministry from beginning to end is marked by defying all expectations that people had of the Messiah, of the promised Christ who is going to come and save people, save the Jews. And how did he defy those expectations here? Well, so this conversation, as you can tell, is a bit of a funny dance. They're talking about water. They're talking about eternal life. Then he pivots to her relational history. And then she pivots again and talks about where the Samaritans worship and where the Jews worshiped. Why did she do that? Well, it might be that he clearly hit home a little bit as he talked about her past. And it was probably more comfortable for her to deflect. She knew he was a prophet. He kind of read her mail, as you might say. He knew way too much about her. But she decided it would be easier to just not take that in. She talked about, well, the Samaritans believe this and you Jews believe this. So it's kind of like saying, like, hmm, that doesn't fit into my theological framework, so I'm just going to pass that aside. It's easy to discard something, however true it may feel, if you claim it's outside your worldview. But Jesus follows her there. He goes right with her and said, okay, let's talk about worship. What is true worship? And he, like her, makes a contrast. But it's not the contrast between Samaritan worship and Jewish worship, mountain versus temple. Instead, he contrasts both of those on one side with worshiping in the spirit and truth. And now he does say this is a new thing. A new era is dawning when this kind of worship is going to be able to happen. So it's brand new to everyone. It's okay that she doesn't get it. But of course, again, we have the privilege of seeing this whole beautiful gospel that John wrote. And one key to understanding what he's talking about here is that in John, we learn that Jesus says that he is the truth. He's the way. He's the life. And he also talked about the spirit, the Holy Spirit, that he poured out on all humans on the earth after he left. It's by Jesus and the Holy Spirit that we can be in relationship with God the Father. And this is true worship. But true worship, by definition, requires us to put aside false worship. Now, Chris talked a couple weeks ago when we opened this series about false worship, and he told the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal, talked about idols. And of course, idols in ancient Israel may have been an altar to a false god or something you carve or a golden calf. But idols can, of course, also be anything we give worth to in hopes that it would give value to us, anything aside from the one true God. 
And that may not be a physical thing. It can be money. It can be sex. It can be power, etc. Anything we value that makes us feel okay, makes us feel good. And idolatry is kind of the fundamental sin. It's saying, I'm going to look over here and choose my own way instead of your way, God. It started with Adam and Eve. They chose their own way. It's been happening ever since. So Jesus makes this contrast. And going back further still in the story, remember he asked about her husband after she just asked for some living water. He paints a clear, simple picture of the life she led. Now, we don't know all the circumstances of her marriages and her current relationship, but we can see in just this little bit of a story that we know it has led to shame. It has led to broken relationships. It's led to division between her and her community. And Jesus listed, you know, marriages, men, sex. All these are really good things, actually, that God gives people. But he intends them to be life-giving, not creating division and shame. Marriage is great when it's a covenant commitment that reflects the covenant commitment God makes with people, promising that he's there for them if they just maintain relationship with him. But these good things can become idols as they became idols for her. They became false worship. She kept reaching out, trying to find one good man after another who would make her feel okay, who would make her feel acceptable in this society. And it clearly wasn't pinning out, but she just kept seeking value, security, and comfort in people. These good things had turned into what was probably an addiction. They were addictive idols. And to be honest with you, this is something I can relate to. So I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Uh, and if you want the full version, let's grab coffee sometime. I don't have an hour right now. But I want to begin by saying that my family, my parents were loving and protective. But for whatever reasons, some of which I've known and discovered, some I haven't, I was a very emotionally needy kid. I was actually really paranoid all the time, even from like the age of six, seven, eight. And this feeling of being like, Wondering what everyone thought of me, wondering what people were plotting against me, feeling of just being different only was exacerbated at school when, like, other friendly kids just being nice would say, like, Patrick, you're weird. Like, thanks, I guess. But those words sunk in. And feeling a little different, feeling weird, eventually turned to feeling ashamed, feeling self-hatred, feeling a constant sense of less than in my life. I was always comparing myself to others and feeling like I never won and really just hoping the others just wouldn't see me, that others wouldn't notice how crappy I was. Where did this come from? Again, I don't really know, but subconsciously looking back, I realized I made two choices to counteract this problem. One, I could make myself worthy, which I did through a lot of overachievement in school and other ways of performing in life. But it turns out that these outward achievements and the praise you get for them don't necessarily change the inner voice. So it didn't really speak into my sense of self. It didn't build my self-worth. It was just passing comforts. The other choice, which I eventually started making, was to find worth in other people. Like, I don't have it, so I'll, I'll surround myself by those who do. If better or perfect people like me, well, that's kind of a close enough maybe to liking myself. 
So I found myself, especially going into young adulthood, getting into patterns of addiction to people and to friends. And I was emotionally dependent on people that I had turned into idols. As you can imagine, this doesn't really create for very balanced or healthy friendships. And no one person, of course, could ever solve the problem for me. No one could really speak truth into my value, at least not alone. Because these people, these friends that I idolized and became addicted to, they aren't God. But they're easier. They're physical. I can see them. I can hear them. I can touch them. Thankfully, other relationships, healthier ones, were able to help me break the power of these idols because these friendships pointed me to God. I had enough Jesus-believing, Jesus-following people in my life who said to me, hey, there's a better way. There's something else you can do to find value. Find it in the one who made you in the one that you're really from. And I began listening to Jesus for reminders of my own worth. I was encouraged toward God by so many friends and pastors and prayer partners. And I still struggle from time to time. I'm, if you only know me now and you knew me maybe in high school and college, uh, you, the difference would be really visible. I may seem confident from time to time. I'm on a stage speaking, blah, 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 but I still struggle. The difference is now I have these tools, these reminders to go to God. When I ignore him for a season, I struggle and I forget how valuable I am. But when I check in with the God who made me, he reminds me of my worth. And he always gives me a choice each time. And I think when we encounter Jesus, he offers us a choice. The contrast is, where are you going for your value? What are you worshiping? That's what he offers me. And the contrast he offered the Samaritan woman, it wasn't between two different ways of worship, Samaritan or Jewish. It was between the two things she was worshiping, the men in her life, these broken relationships, or where she could truly get it. He showed her that worship is not really about a mountain or a temple or going to church on Sunday. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a choice about what you build your life around. And he contrasted her life of chasing relationships that weren't working out with chasing God. And that can seem really far-fetched for this random guy you meet by a well to just throw at you right away. Maybe even a little harsh. But remember the encouragement that Jesus snuck in the middle of that. He said, soon you will worship the Father. He said, you're included in this. All this beautiful stuff I'm talking about with true worship, you are invited. Now, when we're confronted with our sin, oftentimes there's this, if I can use another Christianese, churchy phrase, like, oh, I'm really convicted of my sin. And conviction has its good aspects. I mean, it's, it involves acknowledging an appropriate amount of guilt, perhaps, but it can be such a weighty, harsh word. And Jesus so lovingly and respectfully, respectfully points out the choice we face. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't punish us in that moment. He just says, look at what you're choosing and what the other option might be that would truly give you life. He wants us to give up our sin, give up our idols, so that we may have life with God. And he is the way. He is the living water, the eternal life. He presents himself. He presents the truth. He shines a light on how we're living. And the choice becomes clear. And the cool thing is, 
This wasn't just Jesus. This was God's character through and through. From Adam and Eve, they had a choice in the garden. There's a great, wonderful verse in the Old Testament, in a book called Deuteronomy. You may be familiar with Moses. He led the Israelites, the Jewish people, out of Egypt. They wandered the desert for 40 years, wondering when they're going to get to this promised land that God had for them. And right before they were about to go in, God says to them, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. The choices are always just laid out before us for us to choose. And Jesus offered the Samaritan woman a choice, and he wants her to choose life. And the cool thing is we get to read further in the story and see how this choice changed her right away. So let's pick up in verse 27. The disciples are coming back. They're kind of like surprised to see him talking. And then verse 28 Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Okay, he just said he was the Messiah. Like I said, it takes a while for people to pick up on things when like Jesus comes at you fast. They came out of town and made their way toward him. Cutting ahead to verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them that. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard from our, for ourselves, and we know this man really is the savior of the world. Everything about this woman's circumstances have changed after a quick encounter with Jesus. She was ashamed, she was outcast, and now she's confidently running back to this town she's from, and she has good news to share with everyone. According to her time and place, she was like a woman of the least value, but now she has something invaluable to share that will change the course of so many lives. She's basically become an evangelist. She's no longer crumbling under the weight of her sin, of her life. She's joyful, and she has so much to share. And I think when we encounter Jesus, as we see here, he renews our purpose. He gives us like new reasons for living and being and interacting and relating with others in such good life-giving ways. If we choose life, if we choose him in big decisions and small decisions, we too will have renewed purpose. And it's just in how we live in that worshipful lifestyle that is in relationship with God by the truth of Jesus, and by his Holy Spirit that guides us. The way we live through our words and our actions will also reveal Jesus to other people. Through him, we find freedom from what sin we're trapped in. But our freedom, it's seen, it's visible, it's different, and others will see Jesus in how we live. I met Jesus, actually, in my early teen years, but I walked away from him for a time, and as I told you, I really tried my own method of like finding just a feeling of okay, like mm, this is kind of enough, find my, way, my own way of feeling valuable. But I kept being disappointed, of course, the more I looked to people who couldn't give me that, who couldn't give me true value. And when I made a choice again for Jesus in my early 20s, he spoke to me. And for years, I prayed and I listened to him. And like 99% of the time, all he said to me was, I love you. Patrick, I love you. I wanted to hear a lot more. Like, I wanted to hear, like, tons of details, like he told this woman and all kinds of stuff. But he just said, Patrick, I love you. And it slowly but surely sunk in. And for that reason, I can say that I know my worth today. 
Each of us, everyone in this room truly matters. And to each of us, he wants to give abundant, purposeful life. Choosing to worship in the spirit and the truth, that's how we get there. Saying worship in the spirit and in truth, it still can sound like such a big and abstract thing. But just remember what's not abstract. It's Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's okay that we don't fully get it or don't fully get him. In fact, let's look at a little bit more of this scripture. It's a middle that I cut out before. While the woman had run off to her town, Jesus' disciples came back. And they said, picking up in verse 31, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he goes on. Now, these disciples had been hanging out with him for a long time. They were used to him kind of taking weird turns in conversation. They were confused, just as it's okay that we're confused at first. But Jesus was talking about so much more than what it seemed on the surface. Water isn't just water. Food isn't just food. The harvest is people. He goes on to say, that's what he's there. The harvest is ripe. God is looking for people to follow him. Jesus is always turning the tables in conversation to talk about so much more than we're ready for, than what we're thinking about. And in doing so, when we encounter Jesus, he continually reveals what is true. Always more, always again and again, more of himself, more of the truth, more of the reality of this world we live in. As we seek him, as we listen to him, as we read the Bible, he'll continue to reveal more. Things become a little less confusing, a little less abstract, a little more understandable as we get to know God. And that changes our lives. Jesus was talking about food and water, but it wasn't just food and water. Food and water are the things that sustain our lives. But Jesus was talking about the things that sustain life more in more ways than just this earth. He said, God is spirit. He's opening up this conversation with this woman about God and the spiritual realm and heaven. And all these people have these very like earthbound ideas of in these conversations like water, food. But he's trying to open their minds to what is so much more, what is beyond the physical earth, this simple life that we live that is temporarily limited. When he's talking about eternal life, he's talking about life with God forever. And we can be blinded to to that if we're just looking at what's on earth, just looking at what's physically in front of us. He talks metaphorically about water and food, but he's pointing to God and heaven breaking into earth even as he's discussing with this woman. Heaven breaks into our lives one encounter at a time with Jesus. And with every encounter with Jesus comes dignity, comes purpose, comes more truth, and more choices lifelong. What are you choosing? What are you choosing today, Patrick? Are you choosing me? Are you choosing this thing that might feel good in the moment? Are you choosing what gives you life? Are you choosing what doesn't? Choose life. That's his encouragement to us. 
He's not punishing us. He's not shaming us for our sin. He's saying, choose life. It is a choice. There's a good choice and a bad choice. But he offers it to us because he wants us. He wants us in relationship with himself and his father.